Well, tonight we're going to start the book of Acts. Now, that was because most of you put in a request to go through Acts. Now, I'm going to shock you. I've been pastoring 33 years. I've never taught all the way through the book of Acts. So you made me do something I've never done. But now that I've gotten into it, it's going to be red hot. As a matter of fact, I thought, well, here's what I'm going to call it. Acts, when God gets loose. When God gets loose. Because that's what Acts is all about, when God gets loose. So we're going to... Now, on Wednesday nights, we're sort of in school. I mean, we're, we're studying the Bible. Uh, one of my real um, wishes and desires, and why we're on the radio all over the country is I want to do my little part to help raise biblical literacy in the church because the church is in so many areas biblically illiterate just because for some reason the pulpits haven't taught the whole counsel of God. So I don't know, I can't speak for everybody else, and I, I love all pastors and all churches that are standing with Christ, but here we're going to learn it. So I hope you brought a Bible, and I hope you brought a pen, because your Bible is not too holy to write in. Now, I want you to say with me, paper never forgets. How many of you have been going through the Bible with me every day? How many of you have been getting my notes that I've been sending to you, my little encouragements? If you're not on the email list, you ought to get on it, because I'm starting to get stoked, and I'm sending them more and more, aren't I? And I mean, it's getting better. So if you want to know what God is sharing with me, speaking to me, then get on the email list and they'll send it to you every time I write a little devotional based on what we've read. But we're going to go through it together. And faith comes by hearing the word of God. All right. Well, let's pray over the book of Acts right now. Father, we thank you for this history recording, this writing, giving us the history of the early church, the embryonic church, the freshly spirit-filled church, what you did through your church. And Lord, we pray that tonight you will speak to us, increase our understanding of it, and help us, Lord, to experience the fire they did, to have the zeal they did, to have the boldness they did, and to turn the world upside down like they did. And we thank you for it. Now pray with me and say, Lord, speak to my heart tonight. I receive your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and say, God's getting loose. God's going to God's get loose. All right. Now we always, I type these out. Some of you have wondered, why do you type these out? Okay, I'll tell you how it started. I got an invitation to send our messages to prisons. Actually, there was one prison, and, and there was an inmate that wanted our messages. I never typed out my stuff before. It was handwritten, just a little outline. But we started typing out the messages, and he got them, and then he started a Bible study through them in the prison, and then we started getting more invitations to send them to other places. So, you know, like I say, paper never forgets. And if you write it out, then it, it goes in the hands of people you can't reach vocally. So that's how it started. 
So I type out every week probably 3,000 words a week. I'm so used to it now. And yes, I do the typing. Nobody does it for me. I do it myself. I'm, I like it. But anyway, 3,000 words a week, and it's just going out. I do. So now, let's, let's just look at the book of Acts. I'm calling tonight the church's birthday because this is the church's birthday. The, book of, the, the day of Pentecost is the church's birthday. So let me give you a little history of Acts. The book of Acts is the inspired history book of the church. While the epistles are primarily theological, the book of Acts is primarily testimonial. It is also transitional, covering the period between the Gospels and the epistles. You know, the church is birthed. It's birthed on the day of Pentecost. Jerusalem exploded with spiritual growth and spiritual dynamism, and yet the epistles were yet to come. The book of Acts is the transition time between when the Spirit fell and the epistles were written. Now, the story of the book revolves around the personalities and the ministries of primarily three men, Simon Peter, Stephen, and Saul, who became Paul. Now, Simon Peter was the apostle to the Jews, and of course, we know Saul of Tarsus, the apostle Paul, was the incomparable <clears throat> apostle to the Gentiles. And Stephen, you say, where does Stephen fit in? Stephen, the first martyr, is really the link between the two. Because here's Stephen preaching, and then they stoned him, and standing there was Saul. And it says Saul was giving his consent. I believe when Stephen said, Father, forgive them, Saul was doomed to be saved. And so that's why I say that Stephen was really the link between Peter and his ministry of the Jews and the emerging Saul who became saved and the great apostle to the Gentiles. Now, Peter and Paul could not be more different. And this ought to encourage you because look at the diversity in people that Jesus calls and uses mightily. Peter was a Palestinian Jew. Paul was a Hellenist Jew. Peter was what the world would call an ignorant, unlearned man. A fisherman by trade, we would call him a blue-collar worker. Paul was a scholar, a genius, a trained rabbi an educated Pharisee, a Greek cosmopolitan, a Roman citizen. If you're looking for status, Saul had it in spades. If you're looking for the common man, just a run-of-the-mill guy, blue-collar worker, going out fishing, getting what he could, bringing it home, giving it to the wife, raising a family, you got Peter. And isn't it interesting that Jesus laid his hands on both and both of them became mighty in God. So it doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, what's your background, your pedigree, your education, he can use you and will use you. What he needs is a yielded vessel. Peter was a personal disciple of the Lord Jesus in the days of his flesh. But Paul met Christ as the Lord from heaven. We have no record that he ever heard Jesus in person. 
On the way to the Damascus Road, you know the story. He was knocked down by a bright light and a voice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he was saved. And the first thing out of his mouth, what do you want me to do, Lord? That's a great thing to say when he's knocked you to the ground. What do you want me to do, Lord? Now, Paul said of himself, I was born out of due time. I'm I'm a latecomer to this apostolic company. I'm a latecomer, born out of due time, 1 Corinthians 15, 8. Now, we will see in this study that Luke, the writer, is always balancing Paul with Peter. For instance, there's 18 public addresses recorded in the book of Acts. That means public speeches. 14 of them come from these two men with seven each equally divided between them. So you have this juxtaposition all the time that Luke makes between Peter and Paul and Paul and Peter. They're they're juxtaposed against each other and they are the prominent personalities in Acts. Now the story of the church in the book of Acts is one of constant expansion and dynamic supernatural growth. Hence the title, When God Gets Loose. I want God to get loose here. I want God to move here. When the Spirit of God gets loose, it's just a matter of, hang on, baby, it's about to get fun. See, when God's really moving, you're you're a spectator more than a participator. You're watching the sovereign God do things that, uh, are a surprise even to you. Now, because of the length of this book, it's 28 chapters. I'm not going to go verse by verse. We would be here for two years. But I'm going to highlight the main points of each chapter, and I think it's going to bless you. Now, starting out, Luke begins with the person of Jesus Christ. That's a great place to start. Amen? Acts 1, verses 1 and 2. Luke writes, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now, let me pick this verse apart a little bit. Who is Theophilus? Well, we don't know who Theophilus is. His name literally means loved by God, but it carries the idea of friend of God. Now, I'm just going to throw out a guess. My guess is he's either a Roman official or some person of high rank because he says, oh, noble Theophilus. So this is not a nobody. This is a somebody he's writing to. But it doesn't really matter if we know who he was. Now, notice that Luke refers to his former treatise, which was no doubt the book of Luke, one of the four gospels. He immediately says, the former account I made, O Theophilus. The former account was the book of Luke. He's hearkening back to his his gospel, the book of Luke. Now, he tells us what his goal was with the book of Luke. His goal with his gospel was to provide a record of what Jesus did and what he taught. He tells us in Acts 10.38, I love this summation of Jesus' ministry. I want you to read it with me. He went about everywhere doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil. Amen. Amen. Now, is that not what the church ought to be doing? 
And Luke provided a fabulous record of his teachings, including the Sermon on the Mount, the Upper Room Discourse, and the many parables and precepts that he uttered regarding how to live life according to kingdom principles. You know, once you're saved, you have an instruction manual, and it's called the Bible. If you want to know, and and that's where I'm going this Sunday, if you want to know how to live it, Jesus told us exactly how to live in the new kingdom into which we have been translated. So his second work now, the book of Acts, shows that Jesus' living, doing, and teaching is still going on through the church or should be, and that's the message of this book. When we get into the book of Acts, we're going to see this 120 nobodies literally turning Rome upside down by the anointed power and preaching and ministry and influence of Jesus through them. And we're supposed to read it and say, if he could do it then, he can do it now. Amen? Amen. Now, next in verse 3, he informs us that Jesus appeared to his apostles after the resurrection. Listen to verse 3. To whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Jesus showed up for 40 days after he was risen from the dead. He walked around for 40 days. Now, let me just give you a little, a little uh, chronology of that. We recall that Jesus appeared to Mary first. All you women ought to be blessed. He didn't pick a man. He picked a woman to appear to first. All the ladies say amen. amen. Don't strut, but let that humble you. <laughs> then to the women who went early the first Easter morn to anointing for burial. So again, he appeared first to women. Then he appeared to Peter privately and to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And I've given you the verses here if you want to look them up later. Luke 24, 13, 22. Now, then the Lord made his first appearance to the 11 and gave them their commission. A week later, he appeared to the 11 again. Now, I say 11 and not 12 because Judas was out of the picture having hanged himself. And then he appeared to good old, poor old, doubting Thomas for the first time. Well, that was a meeting too. Hey, Tom, put your hand in my side. Oh, my Lord. I, I don't know if he did it, but if it's me, I'm saying, Lord, I believe, I believe. I'm not sticking my hand in your side. But he told him to do it. And what did he say finally? My Lord and my God. He got it. Now, then next, the Lord appeared to the 11 again on a mountain where they worshiped him. And then later he appeared to seven of the disciples led by Peter who had gone fishing. Peter went fishing, all discouraged, disillusioned, probably beating himself up for having denied the Lord. So being a leader, he decided to go back to his old life and he dragged these others with him. And we know they caught absolutely nothing because if you try going back to your old life, you know what you're going to catch? Nothing. I love Jesus rubbed it in the next morning as the sun was rising. Hey, boys, have you caught anything? (laughs) Nothing. Cast a net on the right side. 
I've heard that command before. They threw on the right side, a great company of fish. John, having a definite grasp of the obvious, said, it's the Lord. And Peter dove in and swam to Jesus, and, and it was a, let's get, let's get right and reconciled, you and me, Peter. All right. For 40 days, the Lord Jesus came and went, overcoming the unbelief of his disciples until they were utterly convinced of his resurrection. His final appearance to them was the day of his ascension back into glory. Jesus was going home. Because he didn't come from earth, y'all. He came from heaven. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. When Jesus appeared, God had wrapped himself in skin. He became one of us. All man, all God, all God, all man. But Jesus was very God. When he looked at you, God was looking at you. That's why he could look at you and tell you all about yourself because he knew all about you. But now he's going back home from whence he came. His final words to them focused on the crucial importance of waiting for the promised Holy Spirit. Now, this is the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the book of Acts only because the Spirit fell. If the Holy Spirit hadn't fallen on these, this motley crew of 120, there wouldn't have been no book of Acts. Because the book of Acts is really the acts of the Holy Spirit. So look what he says to them, being assembled together with them. He commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, Jesus had repeatedly taught them on the importance of the Holy Spirit. Read John 13, John 14, John 15, John 16, all about the importance of the Holy Spirit. He had told them, you've got to have the Holy Spirit for teaching, for power, for fruit bearing. Essentially, he's telling them, don't even think about going forth in my name until you've been empowered by my spirit. Because you'll flop, you'll fail, your words will drop in front of you. But if you are baptized in the Holy Spirit and empowered by him, your witness will carry power and force and anointing and influence. I can't tell you how much I depend on the Holy Spirit. Let no one think that pastoring is easy. It is a major challenge. It will beat the stuffings out of you from time to time. But the only way I've made it 33 years, I'm a total debtor to the Holy Spirit. I'm serious. He has strengthened me. He has encouraged me. He has comforted me. He has taught me. He has picked me up when I was down. He's breathed fresh life into me. He has stoked my vision again. He's kept the fire in my heart burning. It's the Holy Spirit, and I'm a debtor to him. And the only reason I'm in the pulpit at all is because the Holy Spirit filled me when I was 18 years old, and the fire came into my heart to preach and to teach. I, this was not a career choice for me. This was I, he, he chose me and raised me up to do this. But here's my message to you. He's also chosen you. 
that you would go and bear forth and bear fruit and your fruit should remain. So he says, don't you even go out, guys, until the Holy Spirit's fallen upon you. Don't try it until you're anointed. Now, the disciples chose this final moment with their Lord to ask about prophetic things. Look at verse 6. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom into Israel? And what did Jesus say to them? It's not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Now, I can... Let me just add another angle to that. He's saying to them, guys, don't let the times and the seasons, don't let the rest, don't let prophetic things become your focus. I want you to go out and win the world because it's not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Now, there's two, two words for time right here. Times is the Greek word chronos, and it just means length of time. We got chronograph. You know, chronos is how long something lasts. We're in church nine, an hour and a half. That's the chronos. But then the second word is kairos, seasons. It's not for you to know the length of time, guys, before all this happens, and it's not for you to know the seasons. Kairos means the right time, the opportune time, the fullness of time, the ripe time. It says in the fullness of time, God sent Jesus. There's a right time and there's a wrong time to do all things. What did the Ecclesiastes 3 say? So there is a, there is a time for every purpose under heaven. So, He's saying to them, guys, it's not for you to know how long before that happens. It is not for you to, to be focused on whether or not it's ripe for that to happen. I want your focus to be on reaching people for me. Now, do you think that's a word for us today? Now, I love prophecy. I taught a lot of prophecy in this church. But you know what? Our main focus is not prophecy. It's what's been happening here every week. People being saved. The church is growing. We're, we're, we're about to go to three services in a couple of months on a Sunday morning, 9, 10, 30, and 12. And some of you just had an explosion go off in your brain. And you're thinking, wait a minute, I'm not going to be able to come at 11 anymore? I've got to come earlier, 30 minutes earlier to the 11 o'clock, 10.30, yeah. Or you can come at noon. But the reason we're doing it is because we're going to reach more people. And so my front burner issue is not prophecy, though I teach a lot of it. It's not for Jeff to know how long before he comes. Because I can't know. It's locked up in the Father's mind. Even Jesus didn't know. He's given me a message, and he's given me a task, and he's given me a call, and all of us together are going to do it. Amen. While they had followed him, Jesus had talked about a spiritual kingdom. He said the kingdom of God is actually, guys, within you. He had said in Luke 17, 21, but the disciples were st still thinking about a secular kingdom. They wanted to see the overthrow of Rome. They wanted to see the establishment of the millennial kingdom. And they're saying, Lord, when is it going to happen? Because we're under this Roman tyranny. We want to know when it's going to happen. He said, it's not for you to know how long or when it's fully time for that to take place. And so they went out and they rocked the world for Jesus. 
Jesus lets them know that this is a divinely kept secret for now. Their focus and priority is to be on reaching the world. Now, look at verse 8. He tells them what they ought to be focused on. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Guys, you're going to reach the whole known world. And having said these things, Jesus lifted up his hands and he went home. Verse 9, when he had spoken these things, while they watched. Everybody say, while they watched. What we're seeing here is a type of the rapture. While they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Reminds me of Elijah. As Elisha watched the raptured Elijah, he watched until he could no longer see him in the sky, and then he went and started doing what Elijah anointed him to do. The disciples watched until their Lord was no longer visible, and then they went and did what he had anointed them to do. This was the end of an era, folks, when Jesus went home. What had begun in a cradle now ended in a cloud. God in Christ had come to earth. Now he had gone back to heaven. Verse 10, while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you, everybody say the same Jesus. The same one that took off is coming back. Not another Jesus, the same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Well, where did he lift off from? He lifted off from the Mount of Olives. Here is an incredible promise already spoken by Christ himself. I'm coming back. And the angel said, at the scene of his ascension, he's coming back the same way he left. He's coming back. You're going to see him in the clouds. Revelations 1 tells us, behold, every eye will see him in the clouds. Even those who pierced him will see him in the clouds. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn and wail because of him. He would return in the sky just as he had ascended to the sky. If you read the prophet Zechariah, he describes in chapter 14 how the Messiah will land on the Mount of Olives and it will cleave east to west. So in the same way, the same Jesus that lifted up into the clouds will return to the same mount in his second coming. He'll land on the Mount of Olives And what a day that will be. What a day that will be. Now, the 11 disciples next went straight to Jerusalem, the upper room, where the first Lord's Supper had taken place. Look at verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room. I'm so glad we've got an upper room here. They went up into the upper room. That's a good place to be. Where they were staying. Peter, James. I just, there we go. Is that an Amber Alert? Well, there is an edit. 
Okay. Lord, help him be found in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, it's going to name them. Who went up into the upper room? Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas, the son of James, not the betrayer, another Judas. Look at verse 14. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. There they began to pray and wait for the promised Holy Spirit. Amen. It's a good thing to wait for the Holy Spirit. It's a good thing to wait on God, to bless you, to speak to you, to fill you. Now, this is the company of 120 that in just 10 days' time would explode the biggest spiritual bombshell ever detonated on earth and change the course of history forever. Folks, it's one thing when they blasted the first nuclear bomb, but it's nothing like when the Holy Spirit fell on the day of Pentecost. The greatest power in all the world is spirit power, not physical power, not atomic power, not hydrogen power. It's spiritual power. Now, the remaining verses of 15 to 26 have to do with replacing the traitor Judas. It teaches us that nobody's irreplaceable, though to lose your calling is a tragedy. They cast lots, and a man named Matthias was chosen. And I'm just going to let you read it if you want to. Uh, I'm not going to go through all those verses. Now let's go to chapter 2. And I want you to notice again the posture and the mindset of the 120. Chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, that means the kairos had arrived. They were all with one accord in one place. Now notice they were in perfect unity. They were of one heart, one vision, one purpose, and one prayer. Oh, God, pour out your spirit. That's why the devil is always trying to bring division and discord to a body. Because if he can bring division and discord to a body, he can negate its spiritual influence and power and authority. I'm so thankful, and I say this guardedly, but I'm so thankful that right now we have a so beautifully unified church. We have a very unified team. Uh, I mean, we're just really feeling strong for the year 2017. We really are. I hope you are too. Now, let me tell you a little bit about the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost had already come 1,500 times. But now it was fully come. The reason God gave the day of Pentecost and all the symbolism and meaning behind it now has fully arrived. In Old Testament times on the day of Pentecost, the Jews took individual grains of corn, ground them into flour, added oil and leaven, and made two loaves of bread, all under the direction of God. The loaves were then offered to the Lord along with the sacrifice of seven lambs without blemish, one young bullock, and two rams for a burnt offering. Ten sacrifices in all to symbolize the perfection and completeness of Calvary because the day of Pentecost, as did all the Old Testament feasts, points forward to Jesus Christ. 
See, the whole Old Testament is only a sign pointing forward to the arrival of Messiah. The Old Testament looked forward to his arrival. The Gospels celebrated his arrival. And the epistles looked back on his arrival. But you find in biblical numerology that the number 10 represents completeness and perfection. So you had seven lambs, one young bullock, and two rams. Perfect, perfect number, perfection. Because Jesus giving his body on that cross, on that day, in the fullness of time, never needed to be done again. It was a perfect offering, a number 10 offering, And it brought perfect forgiveness, perfect redemption, perfect deliverance, perfect everything. And the day of Pentecost always fell on the first day of the week following the Sabbath, which illustrated for those that were gathered there the beginning of a brand new week, a new dispensation. And the oil, of course, symbolized the work of the Holy Spirit that happened on the day of Pentecost. So everything that God had wrapped into the day of Pentecost was realized and fulfilled when Jesus died on that cross. Now, verse 2 says, my favorite part, and suddenly, everybody say suddenly. Suddenly. Say with me, you never know when God is going to move. Say with me, he moves when he wants to. Suddenly, there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing, mighty wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Now, first you have here an awesome sound. It wasn't an actual wind, but it was the sound of a hurricane-like wind, a wind of great force. They had an audio vision. They heard something that was not there physically. It was the Holy Spirit. It came from the spirit world, but they heard it. Now, you take the wind, and and believe me, God did not make it sound like a wind and remind us of a wind if he didn't have in mind what a wind symbolizes. Let me give you some ideas. The wind is one of many symbols for the Spirit of God in the Bible. Like the wind, he comes from heaven. He fills the world. He moves at will. He cannot be cornered or contained by any special interest group. You go out there and try to grab the wind tonight. Tell me if it does what you want. You can't grab the wind and you can't grab the Holy Spirit when he moves. He is sovereign. He can't be stopped by any man. Jesus said the wind blows wherever it wants. Just as you can hear the wind but can't tell where it comes from or where it is going, so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. Every Sunday, we're seeing people born of the Spirit. They're walking in here. I watch them. I I have a bird's eye view up here, and I can tell the ones who are visiting because they're looking around during worship sort of uh, like wooden Indians. Like, what have I gotten myself into? Uh, I, I can't believe that my friend dragged me here. Then during the message, they're trying not to listen, but but they're they're listening anyway. And then when we stand up and I give the invitation, the wind moves. And you have no idea who he's going to touch or who he's not going to touch. 
But then I see people come down in the invitation and, and, and they're weeping and I can tell they're thinking, I can't believe I'm in an altar in a church. Because the Holy Spirit moves like he wants to. And there's no explanation. Just suddenly somebody is convicted. Some, suddenly somebody is saved. Gives me Holy Ghost bumps just talking about it. I never cease to be amazed, really, seriously, at what we see every week when I see these people down here and how God can touch a stone-cold heart and break it right in a church service. Mm. So there was an awesome sound. Everybody say an awesome sound. But there was also an awesome sight. Now, I forgot to put verse 3 in the notes, so I'm just going to read it to you, and you can put it in your notes uh, later. But then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one of those tongues sat upon each of them. So you had 120 cloven tongues of fire sitting on the heads of every person in that upper room. There was an awesome sound. But then there was an awesome sight. So they had an audio vision, and they also had a, a, a visual vision. I see it. I see spiritual fire. Now, do you think that God did that by mistake? Oh, by the way, first the sound, then the sight. Did you know this is God's order? We human beings would always rather see first, but God puts the hearing first. How did you get saved? You heard. And then you acted on what you heard. And then you saw a changed life. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. So first the sound, then the sight. Now, I, as with the wind, I, I believe also the fire was absolutely intentional because the fire is yet another symbol of the spirit of God. Fire begins, think about it, with a small flame, but then what happens? It spreads. It can devour or consume a city, and the Spirit of God can totally envelop a city. I read a lot of history. I read a lot of church history. Um, I read a lot of secular history. I like looking back because it helps me to understand what's happening now. But you read about the great revivals of the past. You take some of Finney's revivals, just for an instance, or Whitfield, any of them. But Charles Finney was a lawyer who got converted. And he became a revivalist. And he would send a praying man ahead of him into every town where he was going. And this man was a prayer warrior. And he would send him weeks ahead. And this man would get a room. And he would go into the room. And he would shut himself in. And he would pray over the coming revival that Finney was going to conduct. He would pray until he could say to Finney, we're ready to minister under an open heaven. Finney would come into town and people would walk. He walked in, I'll give you an an example. He walked into a factory where a bunch of people were just working, a bunch of men just in there working. And he walked into the factory and just stood there after his prayer had been praying and the revival had commenced. He just stood there. And all of a sudden, all the men began to get agitated. They began to be unable to to work at what they were doing or to focus on what they were doing. 
And finally, they stopped. And the manager walked up to him and said, Sir, you convict us of sin. Speak. And he shared the word, and that whole factory was swept by the Holy Spirit, and people got saved. Maybe the whole factory, I don't remember. But it was a huge move. You see, the the Spirit of God, when he's on the loose, when he really moves, George Whitfield, the great preacher of the Great Awakening, used to go into, he, he came across the ocean many times. He was an English preacher, but he traveled the ocean, which was a multi week, difficult, arduous trip. He was not on the love boat, let me tell you. They were sailing through all kinds of weather and everything else. But when he landed on the early shores of early America, colonial America, when there was Boston and there was Philadelphia and the Northeast had been developed, but the West wasn't developed at all. And and he would land and walk on shore and he would appoint a horseman to take the message that he was coming to a city like Boston. And he would ride this horseman. He would ride and he would just shout, Finney is coming, Finney is coming. And Finney would walk out at the given time to preach to a crowd of 20 and 30,000 people. Pulled by the Spirit of God. And his voice could reach the end of the crowd with no speaker, no sound system. They didn't exist. And people would begin to call out on God, would fall on their faces, would cry out for mercy. When the Spirit of God moved. I'm about to have a moment here. When the Spirit of God moved. Are you with me? Another time, George Whitfield, they kicked him out of all the churches. The Church of England was dead, dry. It, It was wasted. It was useless. And they let him preach one time. They never let him preach again. Because he said, you must be born again. You must be born again. And they kicked him out. He said, all right, you kick me out. I'm going into the fields. Nobody had ever done that. It was totally unknown to go to the fields. His his friends, John and Charles Wesley, had never gone to the fields. Whitfield was the trailblazer who went into the fields for the first time. And he didn't know where else to go. So he walked up. You know, there was coal mines. And these poor men were dying in their 30s from, from, well, there we go. I did what Lawrence did last week. I'm probably not going to put it on. Put it on for me, Jesse. Just slip it on there. Everybody say. Okay, we're good. Am I on? There we go. Another edit. All right. the, these men were dying of coal disease, coal lung disease. By the time they were in their early 30s, they, didn't, they weren't making it past their early 30s. Working in the coal mines, the song said. And their, their lungs were getting covered with black soot. And they were dying so young. And his heart went out to them. So he went to the hole that led down into the coal mine. 
and he shouted, I'll be preaching. And he gave the time that day. I will be preaching the gospel of Christ. And he gave the time and he walked away. He didn't see anybody. He just shouted down into the hole. He came back and all he saw was a sea of coal blackened faces. Oh God. And he preached Jesus. And he wrote, I'll never forget seeing the tears causing little white rivers going down their coal blackened faces. And they received the gospel and they were saved. And the great awakening shook England and shook early America. I've always believed there would have been no America, no constitution like we know it, if not for the great awakening that preceded it. I didn't mean to digress into all of that, but don't those stories touch you? I mean, when the spirit of God moves. So back to the fire. There's a judgment element associated with fire. The lost will spend eternity in a lake of fire. Fire also illuminates. For centuries, man used fire to see at night. No other way he could see. It also warms us. We can penetrate very icy, cold places as long as we have the warmth of fire. It smolders. I like this one. It smolders. Men may try to quench the Spirit's fire in the heart of a believer, as do circumstances, as do trials, as do troubles, as do tribulations. But the fire of the Spirit will smolder. It will burn quietly underneath the soul and rise to spread again. This little light of mine. Don't let Satan it out. So all these beautiful pictures or types are prophetic of what the Spirit of God would do in and through the church. So we have with Pentecost symbolic wind, symbolic fire to usher in a new age and a change in dispensation. The day of Pentecost was the church's birthday. It heralded the death of the old ritual Jewish Pentecost and the birth of the church of God. Next time we're going to deal with this is that. It was spoken by the prophet Joel. Let's stand.